Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Cardio Nerds. Welcome to a new episode of the Cardio Nerds Cardio Oncology Series. We are jazzed to have you here joining us today as we infiltrate a hot topic, cardiac amyloidosis. Cardiac amyloidosis is a growing issue as a consequence of continuously improving diagnostic strategies and a recent higher clinical and research focus on cardiovascular comorbidities in cancer patients. The Cardinerds tackled this topic before in the Cardinerds amyloid series, as well as in our multimodality imaging series. But today, we're applying this intricate topic to the cardio oncology population. Chairing tonight's episode is Cardinerds Cardio Oncology Series Co Chair, Dinu Balanescu, Chief Resident at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan and Cardio-Nerds Academy House faculty for House Jones. And may I say, there's a lot of cardio-oncology in this paragraph. So thanks for bearing with me. Hi, Dan. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about tonight's episode. We're about to make our knowledge on cardiac amyloid and cancer patients a little less restrictive. Helping us achieve this is our FIT lead, and notably another Dan, Dr. Daniel Davies. Dan completed his internal medicine residency at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where he's still training as a cardiology and multimodality imaging fellow. Dan is well-published in HFPATH and cardiac amyloid, and we're very lucky to have him here with us tonight. Hi, Dan. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure leading tonight's episode, especially when considering how lucky we are to have an esteemed guest expert. We are here today with Dr. Omar Siddiqui, who's going to help us unfold the mysteries of cardiac amyloidosis in the Cardio Nerds Cardio-Oncology Clinic. Dr. Siddiqui is an assistant professor of medicine and cardiovascular medicine at Boston University School of Medicine, where he also serves as the program director of the Cardiovascular Medicine Fellowship Program. Dr. Siddiqui is also a leading researcher in cardiac amyloid and is an attending in the BU Amyloidosis Center. Dr. Siddiqui, we can't wait to learn from you tonight. Thank you, everybody. Truly a pleasure to be here. Thanks to all of you for creating this platform and for really spearheading innovation in medical education. It is really great to have you here. And I want to especially thank Dr. Siddiqui and Boston University for joining the Cardinerts family as a member of our Healy Honor Roll of fellowship programs, which support our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. And a special thanks for nominating Dr. Alex Pipolis as the Cardinerts ambassador from the program. Alex has been exemplary in this role and has contributed in several ways, including as a correspondent for our medical journalism program, a fit expert for our journal club on Paragon HF, and she's also been involved with several other impactful episodes, including a case of sinus venosis defect presenting as a misdiagnosis of HFPAF, a case of advanced heart failure in an autistic patient, and a discussion about the role of the physical exam in patients with heart failure with Dr. Mark Drasner and several episodes in our incoming series in the 2022 Heart Failure Guidelines. In addition, during our recruitment edition of CNCR series, we were privileged to learn from Drs. Anshul Srivasta, Yulia Mintz, Michal Ibrahim, Katie Boxdal, and yourself, Dr. Siddiqui, related to a case of carcinoid heart disease. And folks, definitely check out episode 77. The incredible folks there at Boston University have been incredible partners in the Cardinerd's journey. And we thank you so much for coming and joining us tonight, Dr. Siddiqui. Thanks a lot. That truly was an honor on the BMC Cardiology Fellows, um, hashtag Rasulastatin from episode 77. Thank you for having us and, and thank you for doing this again. Well, thanks again, Dr. Siddiqui, for being here. We might as well just get right to it. 
So amyloidosis is a disorder caused by misfolding of proteins into insoluble forms that are deposited into extracellular spaces of the body. Dr. Siddiqui, do you mind telling us a little bit about the two main types of amyloid that affect the heart, as well as some typical manifestations of cardiac amyloidosis? Yes, thank you. So I think it's important to realize that amyloidosis is not one disease. It's a family of diseases characterized by various precursor proteins that misfold and deposit in the heart and other organs. And we'll talk more about that. And there's a total of about 65, 70 amyloidogenic proteins, of which about 30, 35 are known to cause disease in humans. There are two most important kinds of amyloidosis that are clinically relevant to cardiology. The most common kind is ATTR, transthyretin amyloidosis. The precursor protein is transthyretin, also known as prealbumin, made from the liver. The other kind of amyloidosis that commonly affects the heart that you all are familiar with is AL amyloidosis, amyloidogenic light chain. The clinical characteristic of cardiac amyloidosis is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and specifically a restrictive cardiomyopathy. So basically, you have these insoluble, misfolded protein fragments that are depositing in the interstitium, causing the heart to become stiff and thick. So this is basically an advanced diastolic dysfunction. The other thing that we're learning more and more is that right ventricular dysfunction is also very common, and it's probably more common than we appreciate, and it's a driver of the phenotype of cardiac amyloidosis in a lot of patients. Their phenotype is basically characterized by increased filling pressures. In addition to that, they have advanced valvular heart disease as a result of these protein fragments depositing on valves. They may also present with various arrhythmias. Atrial fibrillation is super common. And in addition, you can also get pericardial effusions, both from increased filling pressures as well as amyloid protein directly depositing in the pericardium. In addition to the cardiac manifestations of amyloidosis, there are a whole host of non-cardiac manifestations that coexist. So you may have heard about carpal tunnel and the prevalence of carpal tunnel syndrome, especially bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome in patients with cardiac amyloidosis. Up to 10% of patients with bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome may have cardiac amyloidosis. Similarly, patients with spinal stenosis may be increased risk of having cardiac amyloidosis, and there are other manifestations that we'll discuss as well. Now, Dr. Siddiqui, traditionally, HFPEF with restrictive physiology was deemed in many cases idiopathic or attributed to other cardiac conditions such as valve disease. But we just learned from you that we may be facing a chicken or the egg scenario in this age of increased amyloid recognition. Is HFPEF a consequence of other cardiac conditions, or are those conditions of consequence of unknown amyloid? Now, with that said, I did spend most of my training being told that amyloidosis is a rare condition, just to remember it for boards, but likely I'd never see a case at the clinic. But it doesn't seem that that's the case nowadays. Now, what do I and all the other cardio nerds out there need to know about the likelihood of encountering cardiac amyloidosis? That's an excellent question. What we're realizing more and more over the last decade or so is that ATTR cardiac amyloidosis, transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis, is probably not a rare disease. And there are multiple community-based cohorts of patients with HFPEF, especially those with increased wall thickness more than 12 millimeters, or those including older men in their 60s and 70s with HFPEF. And in those cohorts, 
up to 10% or even more of those patients may actually have transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. And up to 2 to 3% of women may have ADTR, wild-type cardiac amyloidosis. So it's definitely not a rare disease as we become better at picking it up with our diagnostic imaging. Fantastic points about the increasing recognition and prevalence of disease in patients with HEFPEF. But it seems like there's a new paper published like every month about different associations between cardiac amyloidosis and different types of health conditions and heart conditions. Are there any specific groups in which we should be especially mindful of cardiac amyloidosis, especially within our cardio-oncology population? In addition to that, is there a role of screening for cardiac amyloidosis in selected patients? I think like any disease where there is a progressive clinical course and where there are now opportunities for intervention, it is really important to be able to pick up cases relatively early on so we can intervene and improve the lives of our patients. I think that one common clinical reasoning tool is to think of certain illness scripts that can help us to identify patients with cardiac amyloidosis. So I'm going to give you a few illness scripts that may be helpful in this case. There are a few associations that I think are relevant. I've already mentioned one of them, so in up to 10% of older men over the age of 70 with HEFPAS and wall thickness of more than 12 millimeters, in the absence of other causes of LV hypertrophy, may have ADTR cardiomyopathy. There are some interesting associations with calcific aortic stenosis, specifically with low flow, low gradient, severe aortic stenosis in patients with a preserved ejection fraction, up to 4 to 16% of patients with severe aortic stenosis undergoing surgical aortic valve replacement or transcatheter aortic valve replacement are known to have wild-type ADTR cardiac amyloidosis. There is another flavor of ADTR cardiac amyloidosis. So far, we've talked about wild-type ADTR cardiac amyloidosis where you have genetically normal transthyretin protein. You can also have hereditary or variant amyloidogenic transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis, where people are born with a mutation in the transthyretin gene. And the prevalence of hereditary transthyretin varies depending on ancestry. And so we know that patients, for example, with African ancestry are at increased risk for having a one particular mutation, the V122i mutation, which has a carrier rate of about 3 to 4% in patients of African ancestry. So those patients may be at increased risk for hereditary ADTR cardiac amyloidosis. Now, it's important to note that we actually don't have a great sense of the penetrance of hereditary DTR cardiac amyloidosis. In other words, if you're carrying a particular mutation, we can't assert with 100% confidence that you are going to go on to develop that disease. That phenotype may not manifest itself in every patient. But we do know that these patients are at increased risk for developing heart failure with preserved protection fraction. Other populations that are also important for us to think about, there is a cool study from the Cleveland Clinic looking at all comers, about 100 patients with bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome, and about 10% of them had Congo red staining for amyloidosis in their tenosynovium. So there's an association with bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome and ADTR cardiac amyloidosis. Similarly, patients with lumbar spinal stenosis have been found to have transthyretin amyloid deposits in their ligamentum flavum. So there is an association with lumbar spinal stenosis as well. One thing I'll point out, though, is that we don't quite know the true clinical course of patients who are otherwise asymptomatic and do not have a cardiac phenotype 
who are found to have TTR deposits in their carpal tunnel or in their spine. In other words, we don't know how many of these patients are going to go on to truly develop, you know, phenotypically evident cardiac amyloidosis. And we follow a few patients in our center now who were found to incidentally have amyloid deposits in their carpal tunnel or in their spine. And we sort of follow them prospectively. And so we'll find out more about what happens to these patients. A lot of them, when they come to light, don't actually have a cardiac phenotype at the time of diagnosis. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Siddiqui. These illness scripts and special populations to pay attention for and raise our spidey senses for amyloid are very, very helpful. And now to contrast that, let's shift focus to light chain or AL amyloidosis, which involves abnormal production of clonal immunoglobulin protein from the bone marrow that gets systemically deposited. How does the prevalence of AL cardiac amyloidosis compare to ATTR cardiac amyloidosis? Now, in contrast to ATTR cardiac amyloidosis, Systemic AL amyloidosis is indeed a rare disease. So AL amyloidosis is characterized by a plasma cell dyscrasia that produces a monoclonal light chain, which breaks down and forms these amyloidogenic fibrils. The annual incidence is anywhere from about 5,000 to 7,500 patients a year. And that incidence has really not changed over the years. But the prevalence has been increasing. And so a few years ago, there was a study that showed that the prevalence is about 40.5 cases or so per a million. So it's interesting because the prevalence has been increasing as a result of our ability to treat this disease more effectively. And so patients are living longer, which is always amazing for us to see. Okay, so got that. So the prevalence of AL amyloidosis is far lower than ATTR cardiac amyloidosis. But how does AL cardiac amyloidosis present and progress in comparison to ATTR cardiac amyloidosis? AL amyloidosis can be very difficult to diagnose because there are a myriad presentations. And actually, there's data that patients can see up to five to six physicians before being diagnosed. And this diagnosis can take over six months to a year. The most common organs involved in AL amyloidosis are the kidneys and the heart. So about 50% of people will have kidney involvement and about 50% of people will have heart involvement as well. So renal manifestations include nephrotic syndrome. It's also very common to have a peripheral neuropathy and or to have an autonomic neuropathy. So these are things that should, again, raise your spidey senses about AL amyloidosis, especially when you're seeing nephrotic syndrome or an autonomic neuropathy and cardiac amyloidosis. The cardiac phenotype is similar to transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis in that you're dealing with a restrictive cardiomyopathy. You're dealing with drastically increased filling pressures, pulmonary hypertension, right ventricular dysfunction. One thing that is interesting to note in the context of cardiac involvement is that these light chains tend to be directly toxic to the myocardium as well. So cardiac amyloidosis patients who have AL cardiac amyloidosis tend to be sicker. They tend to present with lower blood pressures. They tend to have more frequent admissions for heart failure. At a lower wall thickness than TTR cardiac amyloidosis, they tend to present a more advanced phenotype. So for example, a patient with ATTR cardiac amyloidosis may come to you with a wall thickness of 17, 18, 20 millimeters, and they will be symptomatic, but they will be kind of chronically symptomatic. In contrast, a patient with AL cardiac amyloidosis is going to be very symptomatic with wall thicknesses of 14, 15 millimeters. This is, of course, not a hard and fast rule. And there are plenty of examples of patients with severely increased LV wall thickness with AL amyloidosis. But in general, AL cardiac amyloidosis comes to light a lot sooner because it progresses a lot faster. 
manifestations of systemic AL amyloidosis, it's important to note that these patients often present with macroglossia. So that's a great board question. And that's something that you can see on both the medicine boards as well as the cardiology boards. Somebody who presents with perhaps nephrotic syndrome and a restrictive cardiomyopathy who has a big tongue and they have difficulty swallowing or difficulty talking because of their macroglossia. That is a huge tip-off for AL amyloidosis. You actually get deposition of these amyloidogenic light chains in the tongue. You can also get periorbital hematomas, a very classic raccoon eyes, and that has to do with factor 10 deficiency. And then finally, one of the other things that we see with systemic AL amyloidosis is liver involvement. And so you can have hepatomegaly, you can have ascites, you can have liver synthetic dysfunction. So there are truly a myriad of presentations that you can see with systemic AL amyloidosis. Dr. Siddiqui, you gave us such a wonderful rundown of amyloid. It's truly a systemic disease, and our patients have multiple, multiple layers of complexity beyond cardiac disease. I do want to focus somewhat on our cardio-oncology population. Although I'm pretty much interested in cardio-oncology, I still have trouble remembering more about plasma cells than myocytes. So for those like me who are remembering more about myocytes, can you tell us about the association between the conditions such as myeloma, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, and AL amyloidosis? So yeah, that's a great question. And that's something for a cardiologist that is always very confusing. And it's something that I have been grappling with over the past six years, seven years that I've been doing this as well. So MCAS is a common pre-malignant plasma cell dyscrasia. It's actually the most common plasma cell dyscrasia that there is. There's a prevalence of about 3-4% in the general population. And the prevalence of MCAS increases with age. MCAS can progress to AL amyloidosis. And so that's what's important about this is while this is a monoclonal gammopathy of uncertain significance, in some percentage of the population, Anywhere from 5 to 10% of these patients may progress to AL amyloidosis. And there are some recent studies from Scandinavia that show that patients with MGUS who have a peripheral neuropathy may actually be at increased risk for having progression to AL amyloidosis. Indeed, they may actually have early AL amyloidosis anyway. So that's something to keep in mind is MGUS and a peripheral neuropathy can be a marker of progression to AL amyloidosis. Multiple myeloma is a rare blood cancer, and it has characteristic signs. So you all may be familiar with the CRAB criteria of multiple myeloma. You can have hypercalcemia, renal dysfunction, anemia, bone lesions. And in the absence of these more classic criteria, you may have an increased prevalence of monoclonal plasma cells in the bone marrow up to more than 60%. You may see significantly elevated serum-free light chains. So this is a disease which is a malignant condition characterized by a large population of monoclonal protein. So that is in distinction to AL amyloidosis, where you also have a monoclonal population of plasma cells, but they are of lower prevalence. So less than 10% typically of these monoclonal plasma cells populate the bone marrow with AL amyloidosis in contrast to multiple myeloma. The other thing that's important to realize is that up to 10 to 20% of patients with multiple myeloma may have AL amyloidosis. And up to 10% or so of patients with AL amyloidosis may have multiple myeloma. So it's important to keep that in mind. Less so for the cardiologist, although it's important for us to have that at the back of our mind. But 
I think that for a cardiologist, it's important to be able to refer these patients quickly to a hematologist who are truly adept at differentiating between these plasma cell dyscrasias. Well, thank you for taking us on an amazing whirlwind tour of cardiac amyloidosis of transthyretin, AL disease, how it presents, what populations to worry about. But since we have you here, I wondered if you'd be willing to help me work up a patient that I recently saw in CardioNerd's cardio-oncology clinic that I was concerned might have cardiac amyloidosis. Absolutely. Let's do it. Perfect. Well, Mrs. Amy Lloyd is a 78-year-old woman who presented to the CardioNerd's general cardiology clinic with slowly progressive dyspnea exertion over the last two or three years. She had a history of poorly controlled hypertension, but she was recently able to come off all of her medications because her blood pressure got so much better. She was recently diagnosed with atrial fibrillation about five years ago, for which she takes rivaroxaban for anticoagulation. But a doctor recently tried to place her on metoprolol for recontrol, and she had a syncopal episode, so she had to stop the medication right away. She has no other history of sleep apnea, diabetes, or other classic features, but did have a recent orthopedic surgery for a biceps tendon rupture while she was working at her farm. She's of Scandinavian descent with no family history of cardiovascular disease. On exam, Mrs. Lloyd had normal vital signs with a blood pressure of 105 over 70, a heart rate of 55, and a BMI of 26. Her exam was otherwise remarkable for an elevated JVP, an irregularly irregular rhythm, and bibasilar crackles in the lungs. Now, Dr. Siddiqui, are there specific historical clues in this case or others, as well as other specific exam features that tickle your spidey senses when you're evaluating a patient for cardiac amyloidosis? Yeah, this is a really um, interesting case and very similar to patients that I'm going to see in my clinic tomorrow. There are a few things that raise our concern for cardiac amyloidosis. And again, sort of hearkening back to the illness scripts that we talked about. So this is an elderly patient. This is somebody who is female. And we know that ATTR, wild-type cardiac amyloidosis, is more prevalent in males. And the male-to-female ratio is about 20 to 1. But, but females are definitely at risk as well. This is somebody who's of Scandinavian descent. And what's interesting about that is there are certain transthyretin mutations that are associated with certain ancestry. So we've already talked about African ancestry and the prevalence of the V122I mutation. There are a few mutations of transthyretin that are prevalent in Scandinavia. One of them that is the most prevalent in Sweden is the V30M mutation. V30M is interesting because you also see it in Portugal and Japan, but you can also see it in other parts of the world. So this makes you think a little bit about hereditary amyloidosis. This patient is also interesting in that she has an intolerance for medicines that we use every day in cardiology clinic. All of us have placed countless patients in metoprolol for rate control. It's a very mundane part of cardiology. But this patient is intolerant to beta blockade for rate control. And this is something we commonly notice in cardiac amyloidosis. Medications that we use to control heart rates like beta blockers and calcium channel blockers are not tolerated in this disease. The thought is that because you have a restrictive cardiomyopathy, these patients are often using tachycardia to augment cardiac output. They also have an inability to augment cardiac output appropriately with exercise. And so beta blockade hinders their ability to augment cardiac output further. Calcium channel blockers, which you didn't mention in this case, but I'll just say as a quick aside, are also very interesting because we know that the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers may actually complex directly with amyloid fibrils and cause local toxicity and cause significant bradycardia or heart block in these patients. 
The other interesting feature of this case is atrial fibrillation. Now, atrial fibrillation is obviously common in the population and one in 10 people in their 80s may have atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, however, is exceedingly common in patients with cardiac amyloidosis, so much so that the vast majority of these patients will probably develop atrial fibrillation at some point. The other illness script that you must remember with atrial fibrillation is that these patients are at very high risk for atrial clot formation. And in fact, if you have a patient with atrial fibrillation who has recurrent left atrial appendage clots despite anticoagulation, that should really raise your index of suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis. And indeed, our electrophysiology colleagues have diagnosed quite a few patients with cardiac amyloidosis based just on that feature. The other thing here that's interesting is that she's presenting with progressive heart failure symptoms and on physical exam has signs of elevated filling pressures. Now, you might think that she is volume overloaded and she may well be volume overloaded. But one thing to remember with cardiac amyloidosis is that we tend to conflate pressure and volume in heart failure. But in this case, signs of pressure overload are actually related to poor compliance of the ventricles. And while these patients may be volume overloaded and we do try to diurese them, sometimes we're not effective in doing that because they need to fill at a higher filling pressure because of their non-compliant ventricles. Well, those were fantastic things to keep in mind for a patient like this or other patients that we see in clinic. Let's talk a little bit more about Mrs. Lloyd's presentation. So we got a chance to go through her ECG echo in labs that were pre-ordered prior to our consultation. It looked like multiple ECGs showed persistent rate-controlled atrial fibrillation with a heart rate of 50s to 60s, even off of that metoprolol, and the ECG voltage was normal. Her echo showed an ejection fraction in the range of 55 to 60%. There was severely elevated left ventricular filling pressures, as well as mildly increased concentric wall thickness in the range of 13 to 14 millimeters. LV strain imaging was performed that did show abnormal global strain, as well as a relative sparing of the apex or a cherry on tap pattern. Other basic labs included a CBC, BMP, and hepatic function panel, but those were all relatively normal. Dr. Siddiqui, other than the classic apical sparing pattern on LV strain imaging, what other features on ECG and transthoracic echo do you look for in patients as a clue for cardiac amyloidosis in their workup? So here I'm going to put a quick plug in for the first multimodality imaging guidelines that were published in 2019 that are really a comprehensive document published by ASNIC and, and multiple other societies as a collaborative effort to really collate all the findings that you can see in imaging. Findings of cardiac amyloidosis more commonly involve low voltage. And the prevalence of low voltage may be anywhere from about 45% to 70% of the population with cardiac amyloidosis. It's probably more common in AL amyloidosis and the lack of low voltages should not make you rule out cardiac amyloidosis. That's very important, especially in transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. You can oftentimes see normal voltage. What is important is the voltage to mass ratio, meaning what is your expected voltage for the mass index that you're seeing on echo or cardiac MRI? Because these patients will typically have very thick hearts and you would imagine that you would see less ventricular hypertrophy on ECG. So oftentimes, especially with ATTR cardiac amyloidosis, even though you have a very thick left ventricle with wall thicknesses in the 17, 18, 19 millimeter range, you may see normal QRS voltages on ECG. The voltage to mass ratio makes you realize that the mass is out of proportion to the voltage that you're seeing on ECG. So that's kind of important to realize. 
The other thing that you might see on ECGs is a pseudo-insult pattern. In the absence of known coronary disease, in the absence of wall motion abnormalities, you may have Q waves. This is something that you see more commonly in AL amyloidosis, and we may see a pseudo-septal insult pattern or an insert insult pattern in those patients. Findings of cardiac amyloidosis on echocardiography, in addition to what you talked about with global longitudinal strain, are increased LV wall thickness like we talked about, increased RV wall thickness. You can also see thickening of the interatrial septum. You can see valve thickness, mitral valve and aortic valves may be very thickened. And this typically happens as the disease progresses. So certainly these are not features that you should use to rule out cardiac amyloidosis, but they can be corroborative. The other thing that I was taught in medical school was the starry sky appearance of cardiac amyloidosis. And this is known as granular sparkling. It looks like you have kind of sparkling diamonds in the myocardium. That's thought to be the direct result of these amyloid fibrils and how they interact with your sound waves. But that is neither specific nor sensitive in echocardiography. So we don't really use that to make a diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis or to rule out cardiac amyloidosis. Other findings in echocardiography are advanced diastolic dysfunction, significantly increased filling pressures, and significantly reduced global longitudinal strain. Although amyloid causes such a dramatic clinical impact, its diagnosis actually takes some finesse. Uh, We already heard a little bit about clinical exam, about multimodality imaging, and about comprehensive cardiac testing in general. Now, in a patient like Mrs. Lloyd specifically, in which we are quite concerned about cardiac amyloidosis, its type, its cause, what further tests would you consider? I think that in the diagnostic algorithm for cardiac amyloidosis, the most important step is to rule out AL amyloidosis and to rule out a plasma cell dyscrasia. And that's because these patients can get sick very quickly. They need to be treated very quickly and they need to be referred to a hematologist. So what we do when we have a suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis, even though AL amyloidosis is rare, we rule out a plasma cell dyscrasia in all patients. We do that by checking serum-free light chains, so kappa and lambda-free light chains. We check a serum immunofluorescence electrophoresis, SIFE, and a urine immunofluorescence electrophoresis, UIFE. Importantly, we do not send just an SPEP or a UPEP as you might for multiple myeloma. And the reason is that the IFE is more sensitive in picking out the smaller amount of monoclonal protein that you see in AL amyloidosis. Remember that these patients may not have the large burden of a monoclonal protein that a patient with multiple myeloma may have. If there is no plasma cell dyscrasia, then we have bone scintigraphy, like pyrophosphate scan in the United States, DPT in Europe, that is helpful for diagnosis of ADTR cardiac amyloidosis. But it is critical to rule out a plasma cell dyscrasia because you can pick up, quote unquote, false positives on bone scintigraphy in the setting of AL amyloidosis. Dr. Siddiqui, so I think you make perfect points about the importance of ruling out the presence of light chain amyloidosis prior to moving on to diagnosing patients with PYP imaging. I was also wondering about the clinical utilization of cardiac MRI, recognizing that there's also important features on MRI that can be valuable as part of the diagnosis and even prognosis of these patients. That's an excellent question. While echo is often a gatekeeper to heighten our suspicion For cardiac amyloidosis, cardiac MRI can help refine that further by 
helping us diagnose and infiltrative cardiomyopathy. So we obtain cardiac MRI commonly in patients who may otherwise have suspicion for systemic amyloidosis. Cardiac MRI is not very useful in distinguishing AL amyloidosis from ADDR amyloidosis, but it does help us really nail that diagnosis of an infiltrative cardiomyopathy. So if we're concerned about distinguishing between cardiac amyloidosis and other causes of a thick heart, other causes of LVH, then we may proceed with a cardiac MRI to better help diagnose an infiltrative cardiomyopathy. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for adding more tools to our tool belt. So given our concern in our patients, Mrs. Amy Lloyd, we did perform laboratory evaluation, including free light chain analysis, as well as protein electrophoresis of the serum and urine with immunofixation, just like you told us to. This showed a normal ratio of capital lambda, as well as no evidence of a monoclonal protein. Now, we subsequently transitioned and decided to perform a technetium pyrophosphate or PYP scan. At three hours, this showed grade two myocardial uptake, a heart to contralateral ratio of 1.7, with normal at three hours being less than 1.3, and clear myocardial radio tracer uptake on spec CT imaging done at the same time. As we all know, light chain amyloidosis can't be ruled out by PYP imaging like you just discussed, but given the negative light chain assessment, this was considered consistent with transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. Dr. Siddiqui, what do we know about the implications of positive pyrophosphate scans and other imaging on prognosis and cardiac amyloidosis? Bone scintigraphy has really been paradigm shifting and groundbreaking in a lot of ways. In the absence of a plasma cell dyscrasia, a pyrophosphate scan has upwards of 90-95% sensitivity and 90% or so specificity for diagnosis of ADTR cardiac amyloidosis. In fact, if you have grade 3 uptake, and so by grade 3 uptake, what you're doing is you're qualitatively looking at your planar image and your spect image, and you're trying to see if the uptake is more than bone, more than the ipsilateral rib, for example. That Grade 3 uptake actually has a specificity that approaches 100% in the absence of a plasma cell dyscrasia. Another way of diagnosing ADTR cardiac amyloidosis with PYP scan is the heart to contralateral lung ratio that you mentioned. And there what you do is you put a region of interest over the myocardium and then you put a similar region of interest over the contralateral lung tissue. And so you're basically comparing the pyrophosphate uptake in the heart to the contralateral lung. And then the ratios are, as you mentioned. Our pyrophosphate scan has really proved to be groundbreaking in diagnosing ADTR cardiac amyloidosis in the absence of a plasma cell dyscrasia. In terms of prognosis, we know that a heart to contralateral lung ratio of more than 1.6 or so may be associated with worse survival. So it may be associated with increased burden. There are interesting studies looking at the burden of cardiac amyloidosis by both PYP scan as well as more novel PET tracers. So stay tuned for that because there's going to be a lot more data in that. There's also ways of looking at burden and cardiac MRI that we're not going to go into because that's outside the scope of this discussion. But just know that there are more experimental ways of figuring out your burden of amyloid fibril deposition in the heart. And that tracks with survival and overall prognosis. Dr. Siddiqui, we talked quite a bit about the general workup of amyloid. What about an uh, invasive diagnosis? What about tissue biopsy of sorts? Not necessarily cardiac biopsy, but what would be the role of biopsy in general 
in patients that we suspect for a cardiac amyloid? And where does endomyocardial biopsy fit in the workup? So endomyocardial biopsy has had kind of an interesting evolution in the management of amyloidosis. About a decade ago, maybe even five or so years ago, every patient with cardiac amyloidosis ultimately arrived at a diagnosis because of a tissue biopsy. And in AL amyloidosis, you still need a tissue biopsy, either an abdominal side aspirate or a bone marrow biopsy or a kidney biopsy if the kidneys are involved. In ATTR cardiac amyloidosis, because of the advent of bone scintigraphy like PYP scans, we have been able to quite successfully make a non-invasive, non-biopsy diagnosis if we can rule out a plasma cell dyscrasia. However, there is still a role for endomyocardial biopsy. And that is if something just doesn't add up. So if you have somebody with a plasma cell dyscrasia and increased PYP uptake, and you are concerned about systemic AL amyloidosis, but there are features that suggest transthyretin amyloidosis as well, then we proceed with an endomyocardial biopsy to help with a pathologic diagnosis. And there are cases, and these are very uncommon, but there are definitely cases of patients who might have both as patients with systemic AL amyloidosis and ATTR cardiac amyloidosis. Very rarely you might have both in the heart. That is exceedingly rare. And the third possibility is, you know, we've spent all this time talking about AL amyloidosis and TTR cardiac amyloidosis, but there are, you know, 30 other possible precursor proteins. And so every now and then we pick up beta-2 microglobulin amyloidosis or fibrinogen amyloidosis. So there are other kinds of amyloidosis precursor proteins that we might pick up. And so certainly in cases that just don't add up where there are non-biopsy markers of various kinds of diseases, endomyocardial biopsy may be helpful in nailing a diagnosis. That was such important and helpful information, not only understanding how do we use the tools that we're already using non-invasively to understand our patient's prognosis, but also recognizing that even in the current state of medical diagnosis, especially with TTR with PYP scans, that there's definitely still a role in these patients that just don't quite add up of pursuing endomyocardial biopsy. I think that's really helpful. In our patient, it seemed like everything was pointing in the direction of saying that this was most likely a TTR patient with cardiac amyloidosis and associated to HEFPEF. We did pursue genetic testing for abnormal variants like you had briefly discussed before with the question of her Scandinavian heritage and being a woman. However, there was no significant abnormality, no abnormal variants in the TTR gene, suggesting that this is wild-type disease. The patient was then started on the medication tefamidus. Do you mind telling us a little bit about tefamidus and some of the other TTR-specific therapies, as well as how they impact patients and their outcomes? This is really an exciting time to be practicing in this field. We have several therapeutics, both commercial and experimental, that help target the process of amyloidogenesis in transthyretin at various steps. So we know that transthyretin is a protein that's made by the liver. It circulates in the body as a tetramer, which breaks down eventually into monomers that misfold and then deposit as these insoluble fibrils. And at every step in the process, we can intervene and prevent that process of amyloidogenesis. Tefamidus is the only FDA-approved drug for ATTR cardiac amyloidosis. It really is a breakthrough in that regard. It is a TTR stabilizer. So it binds to the transthyretin tetramer 
stabilizing it and slowing down the rate of dissociation. So there's one randomized controlled trial that you are all probably familiar with, and that's the ATTR-ACT or the TRACT trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. That was a randomized controlled trial of about 440 patients that assigned patients to either placebo or two different doses of tefamidus, either 80 milligrams or 20 milligrams for a total of about 30 months. And it was an interesting hierarchical method of assessing outcomes, both all-cause mortality, followed by frequency of cardiovascular hospitalizations. And this was a statistical method known as the Finkelstein-Schoenfeld method. It basically showed that all-cause mortality and cardiac hospitalizations were significantly decreased in patients who received tefamidus, in all comers who received tefamidus, compared to patients who received placebo. In subgroup analyses, patients who received tefamidus 80 milligrams had a more significant decrease in mortality, as did those patients who had earlier disease, NYHA class 1 or 2, and those who were younger, as well as those who were wild-type cardiogamylodosis. But it's important to note that most of them were wild-type cardiogamylodosis in this study. So, Based on the ATTRACD trial, tefamidus was approved by the FDA. We use tefamidus as first-line therapy for patients with ATTR cardiogamyloidosis, particularly those with wild-type ATTR cardiogamyloidosis and those with hereditary ATTR cardiogamyloidosis without significant neuropathy. What I tell patients, though, is that this is a TTR stabilizer preventing further deposition or slowing down further deposition of amyloid protein. However, You've already had amyloid protein deposit in the myocardium, and that's why, you know, these patients are often presenting with advanced restrictive cardiomyopathy. That amyloid protein that has already deposited will continue to manifest the phenotype of cardiac amyloidosis. So this is another way of saying that a lot of patients who get started on tefamidus don't actually feel better. And so it's very important to manage those expectations. Our goal in starting somebody on tefamidus is to slow down progression, ideally to prevent progression, but progression unfortunately remains inevitable in this disease. And so people will progress, but our hope is that we're slowing down progression and that people will be able to live longer and enjoy a better quality of life. But it is really important to counsel your patients on the fact that they may not feel better. Our hope is that they just don't feel worse. There are other therapeutics that are also very interesting. And in the cardiac amyloidosis space, these are approved for patients with hereditary amyloidosis causing a peripheral neuropathy. These are known as gene silencers. And there are two ways of silencing the TTR gene. So the idea is to intervene at the level of messenger RNA and prevent translation into transthyretin protein. One mechanism is short interfering RNA or small interfering RNA. And these are drugs such as Pediceran, which is the oldest small interfering RNA. And that was shown in a randomized trial to stabilize neuropathy and actually improve neuropathy in some patients. There are other versions of this drug. Most recent version is something called Vutriceran, which unlike Pediceran is a subcutaneous injection. Pediceran is an IV infusion. The other class of TTR silencers are the antisense oligonucleotides. And the major drug in this class is inotercin, which was also tested in a randomized trial and showed to stabilize neuropathy in patients with a peripheral neuropathy due to hereditary amyloidosis. Both inotercin and pediceran are FDA approved for patients with hereditary ATTR amyloidosis causing a peripheral neuropathy. There are next-generation therapies that are also 
being tested currently, and they're super exciting. So I talked about how we are trying to prevent further deposition of amyloidogenic protein, either through TTR stabilization with defamidus or with TTR gene silencing and preventing production of the TTR protein by small interfering RNA, patisserat, or antisense oligonucleotide, inotersin. But what about the amyloidogenic fibrils that are already deposited in the heart, right? Those are going to keep causing remodeling and you're going to develop atrial fibrillation and advanced heart failure. There is interest now in targeting those fibrils by developing antibodies that can essentially leach out that protein and dissolve them. So this line of therapies were developed because of observation that there are some patients, particularly with AL amyloidosis, who, when successfully treated, may actually show signs of improvement with a reduction in LV wall thickness. So it became clear that there was probably some biologic mechanism at play that allowed these amyloidogenic fibrils to leach out from the heart. And there was some thought that maybe there are antifibril antibodies that these patients are making. And so there is a lot of interest in developing synthetic antibodies that target amyloid fibrils, both AL amyloid fibrils as well as transthyretin amyloid fibrils. These therapies are now in clinical trials, and so we're awaiting further results. The other ultimate gene silencer is CRISPR-Cas9, and that I feel is the ultimate gene silencer in multiple diseases. So these are the molecular scissors that you can use to actually snip out pieces of DNA. And in the hereditary amyloidosis world, there was actually a small trial recently that showed benefit in a small number of patients who were tested with this CRISPR-Cas9 system. This is currently in phase one trial. That represents the next frontier in gene therapy for hereditary ATTR amyloidosis. Dr. Siddiqui, that was an amazing overview of not only like the, the classic therapies that we've all learned in these recent trials, but also these things that are next level that we can really look forward to over the coming years with new research and completely different avenues of therapy. Now, I know that your first love, as you described to me before I started the episode, is AL disease. And there's been more and more research that has shown that even traditional therapies in AL can be beneficial and actually show possible regression of amyloid fibrils on cardiac imaging. I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about those AL therapies and what we're seeing in these studies. So AL amyloidosis is also going through something of a revolution right now. In the past, the most durable treatment for AL amyloidosis was an autologous stem cell transplantation. And this usually followed on the heels of chemotherapy like Heidos Melsalan to prepare the bone marrow to eliminate the plasma cell clone. This was followed by other chemotherapy regimens, such as Cyborg-D, which consists of cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. Most recently, though, there has been the development of an anti-CD38 antibody called daratumumab, which has shown significant benefit as first-line treatment in addition to Cyborg-D in patients with systemic AL amyloidosis, even those patients with fairly advanced cardiac involvement. These are the patients who historically did poorly with more aggressive anti-plasma cell therapies. And so with the advent of diatumumab, we really have an agent that is unique and quite effective in managing systemic AL amyloidosis. One thing that's interesting, though, is always to remember that any kind of amyloidosis is operating on two levels. You have the production of the amyloidogenic protein. So in this case, you have a plasma cell clone that's churning out these amyloidogenic light chains. Then you have the second level where 
these insoluble fibrils are depositing in the organs and causing organ dysfunction. And so we see this quite remarkably in AL amyloidosis, where even though you're successful in shutting down the amyloidogenic factory, even though you're successful in shutting down the plasma cell clone, the amyloid fibrils that have deposited in the kidney or in the heart will continue to progress and cause organ dysfunction. And so this can be quite frustrating for patients because they're told by their hematologist that they're in a complete hematologic remission, you know, congratulations, which is really happy news, but they continue to feel poorly and they continue to have nephrotic syndrome or their kidney function continues to worsen or they develop atrial fibrillation. A lot of it has to do with remodeling induced by the amyloidogenic fibrils in their organs. And so that's sort of an interesting two-step process that one has to keep in mind when they're taking care of these patients. And so in that light, there is a lot of interest in trying to dissolve the amyloid fibrils that are already in the heart or in the kidneys. And that's where things like antifibril antibodies come in. In the AL amyloidosis world, there was a clinical trial of an antifibril antibody that unfortunately was not successful, but there are other trials that are underway. The other thing that's kind of interesting that I'll mention very quickly is the amyloid fibril actually consists of various components. And we've talked about transsirenin or light chains, and we think that those are the actual fragments that, that result in amyloidogenesis. So it's important to remember that the amyloid fibril is actually composed of various components. And the most important ones are the ones that we think are actually amyloidogenic, like the transthyretin fragments or the light chain fragments. But you have other components as well. So serum amyloid P is a component in different kinds of amyloidosis. And so that may be a common target for antibody therapies. And there is some interest in developing an anti-serum amyloid P antibody that has met with sort of variable success over the years, but that is an area of active research, both for therapy, but actually also for diagnosis of amyloidosis and for amyloid burden assessment. Well, Dr. Siddiqui, you know, it definitely sounds like this is an exciting time, but also that we have what to look forward to down the pipeline to see how we can both prevent the production of the abnormal protein but as well as try to clear it so that we can help our patients halt the disease and also help them have symptomatic improvement. This comes up whenever we're discussing new and novel agents and exciting things that hit the market. You know, there's definitely a clear benefit of therapy as you described, but there's also been a lot of discussion about the cost of these medications. In your practice and experience, is the cost a barrier to therapy for these patients? With the advent of defamidus, came the term financial toxicity. It was the most expensive cardiovascular therapeutic on the market, priced at around $225,000 a year. Of course, most people don't pay that amount. Their insurance company will help cover part of that, but it still remains, for some patients, prohibitively expensive. And that was certainly the case early on. I think over the years, we have developed mechanisms for applying for financial aid for our patients. A lot of insurance companies now pay for tetamidus. That's also a reason to go to specialized amyloidosis centers because they may have staff there to help patients apply for financial aid through resources online or to apply for grants, etc. Well, there's a fantastic overview of not only medications, but also the potential challenges of using those medications. But we also know that in cardiology, a lot of the focus of our management in these patients of both AL and TTR amyloidosis is actually going to be the management of the heart failure symptoms and other cardiac symptoms. What role do traditional heart failure medications play in the treatment of these patients? 
And is there any data to support any of these specific medications in patients with cardiac amyloidosis specifically? I feel that a large part of my practice consists of discontinuing traditional heart failure therapies. And that's because, and for reasons that we sort of alluded earlier, patients are fairly intolerant of therapies such as beta blockade, because like we said, they are often dependent on their heart rate to augment cardiac output. And so blocking a tachycardia response can actually result in poor exercise tolerance, increasing fatigue, et cetera. We also see that patients have a profoundly hypotensive effect often to the ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers and ARNI. And so those medicines are also poorly tolerated. We also don't have great data to support a mortality benefit with these drugs in cardiac amyloidosis, unlike in HEFREF and to some degree in HEFPEF. There are a few caveats we do use. So our cornerstone of therapy is furosemide or torosemide. So we use loop diuretics to alleviate congestive symptoms and help people feel better. Spironolactone is something that we actually use quite commonly as adjunctive therapy, as a potassium-sparing diuretic. And also there is some data over the past couple of years looking at the TOPCAT trial and looking at the subgroup of patients who were felt to be more consistent with cardiac amyloidosis. So these are patients who had increased LV wall thickness, who had reduced mitral annular S-prime velocities of less than six centimeters per second. These patients had a worse prognosis, as you might imagine, as compared to the overall TOPCAT population but they had a similar magnitude of benefit with spironolactone. So this is a signal that deserves to be followed further, but maybe spironolactone does have a role in this population. And it's certainly something that I use quite liberally with my patients, renal function permitting. There's also a lot of interest in the SGLT2 inhibitors. And, you know, these are drugs that we're basically adding to the tap water at this point. But there are preliminary studies and kind of smaller studies showing that patients with cardiac amyloidosis tolerate these therapies effectively. Whether or not these therapies are beneficial is something that needs to be studied further. There was some concern that given that these drugs may increase diuresis, that they may not be tolerated as well in cardiac amyloidosis, but it sounds like they are. So this is also something that we are excited about studying. And perhaps these are drugs that may result in preventing adverse remodeling in this cohort. The other thing that we think a lot about in this population is the risk of cardioembolic events. We know that atrial fibrillation is exceedingly common in patients with cardiac amyloidosis. And these patients have a cardioembolic risk that is not adequately captured with their CHATS VAST score. So this is something where you will start patients with cardiac amyloidosis and atrial fibrillation with anticoagulation, regardless of their other risk factors for cardioembolic events. The other line of investigation that is fascinating is looking at atrial infiltration with these amyloid fibrils and resultant atrial electromechanical dissociation. This results in stasis of blood in the atria and promotes blood clot formation, even in sinus rhythm. And so we're trying to figure out ways in which we can better predict this. There were studies from about 10 years ago looking at transmitral A velocity and the AL amyloidosis population and how that actually associates with an increased risk of cardioembolic events, even in patients with sinus rhythm. There is now interest in looking at left atrial strain and how diminished left atrial booster function may be associated with cardioembolic events, again, in sinus rhythm. So we're trying to refine our risk stratification for intracardiac clot formation in patients who may not even be in atrial fibrillation. 
Wow, what a fantastic discussion. Dr. Siddiqui, thank you so much for teaching us about the approach to newly diagnosed amyloidosis. We tackled so many topics today from types of amyloid to its role in cardio-oncology, its clinical presentation, comprehensive imaging and tissue diagnosis, and novel therapies. It really is an exciting time to be caring for amyloid patients. I know my heart is fluttering right now in excitement, but we cannot possibly end this episode without asking you, Dr. Siddiqui, what makes your heart flutter? I think a lot about food. You know, I'll I'll throw out a recommendation here. If you guys are ever in Boston, there is a bakery called Sour Bakery. It's like all over Boston, but I go to the one uh, in the South End and they have the best lemon ginger scone in the world. So this is something that I think about as soon as I wake up in the morning. And a latte and a lemon ginger scone, you know, on a fall day in Boston really hits the spot. So I would highly recommend it. Thanks for that recommendation, Dr. Siddiqui. It is duly noted. We were so lucky to have such a phenomenal crew staffing the cardio-oncology clinic tonight. Dr. Siddiqui, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you to the Dan's for coordinating tonight's episode. You guys are awesome. Please stay tuned for the next episode in the Cardio Nerds Cardio-Oncology series. Thank <laughs> you.